Welcome to Bible study today. I'm Len, standing in for Nick, and we have a panel of four. The first is Stephen. Would you like to greet the listener, Stephen? Hi, listener. How are you going? <laughs> and we have also Harvey. Hi, all. And we have Helen. Hello. Lovely to be here. We've been studying over the last few weeks the book of Acts. And today we're continuing with that study and we're going to be going from Acts chapter 6 to verse 8. So far what we've learned is that how the Christian church started with something like 3,000 plus members. But one of the most important things, in fact I would have to say the important thing, is that in the early formation of the church, power was given to the church in the form of the Holy Spirit. The early believers spent a lot of time together. They spent time learning. The apostles were teaching them. They fellowshiped together. They ate together. They prayed together. They had everything in common. They met together in temple courts because they never had a church building, so they would go to the temple. And it says they were praising God and they were glad with sincere hearts. And that's the effect of learning that Jesus loves you. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the early church was a rapidly growing church but at the same time there was opposition from the Jewish leadership the Sanhedrin Peter and John had been arrested twice they'd been imprisoned and flogged they'd been cautioned no they'd been commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus although as it says in Acts 2:42 they continued to do that day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming that Jesus is Christ the Lord. So how, how did the church, what was the growth of the church like? And what was the Jewish leadership? How did they feel about this? Helen, do you have an answer there? I have a great text. And it's in Acts 4, 4, and it says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Well, hey, how would we all like that sort of a growth? Well, it was certainly a quick growth, and that was not just 5,000 people, was it? No, no. That was men. Yes, yes, And then, yeah. of course, there'd be women and children that... Well, you couldn't go beyond that, I suppose. But let me also mention, though, Lynn, that having those amount of people coming in suddenly, there was a sudden growth in the church. That would have um, caused quite a problem. It would have probably outstripped their resources um, and even precipitated difficulty. And if we flip over into Acts 6 verse 1, that's exactly what it says. It says, And in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. You know, they were vocal. They were, they were feeling, these people were feeling that the widows were neglected and treated um, unfairly. And it, this may not have necessarily been done deliberately. I believe it was probably caused from the custom or even the language of the day that sadly they were overlooked but it did cause a problem so they weren't all widows was the problem with all the widows in the congregation or is it just a particular group of well widows? they did mention but it was the widows that were neglected yeah. i thought it was the greek widows were having were missing out well in my bible it says that it was the hellenistic jews yes. who were complaining against the hebraic jews because the Hellenistic Jewish widows were being missed out. So that means that the people who spoke Greek, um, the Jewish Greek-speaking part of the church that, that, had, that had sort of come into being, they felt like they were getting the raw end of the deal, I suppose. So they're the ones that were called the Hellenistic Jews, yeah. Yeah, just to clarify that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, with a name like Helen, I reckon that would be um, <laughs> quite applicable. 
So there was this problem that arose. The Greek widows, if you like, or the Grecian widows, were being neglected. In what form do you think, Helen, before we move on from there, were they being neglected? Well, they weren't getting the same supply or their needs filled like the other Jews. And by the needs, I'm talking about the food, the allocation of the food that was being given out. So this really revolved a bit around culture, didn't it? Yes. It was a case of that seeing within the church at that time, things were held in common largely. And so it was shared out as needed. But if somebody was in need and they weren't getting a share, that's what caused the problem. Mm, Yes. So what solution was proposed? Well, they decided to get organised, I suppose, is probably the best way of putting it. Um, They decided that um, they should allocate out the responsibilities. And um, in verse 2 of Acts chapter 6, it says the following. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So they got organized. And they were very wise in the way they did this because they turned to the people who had the issue and invited them to take charge of it, Mm. which is a really sensible thing to do. And um, so that's what they did. And so that they could be freed up to do what they were called to do, which was to to spread the news about Jesus and to explain and um, propound the truths about him because they were the ones who knew him the best. Yeah. But it didn't mean that those that were asked to wait on tables were any less used of the Spirit, though, does it? Well, no, it doesn't because the fact is that they chose people who were full of the Spirit. It says there in verse 3, I think it is, um, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. So these guys were full of full of God's activity in their lives. That's pretty important, really. Mm. When do you think about it, when we um, travel interstate or somewhere where we don't know the area particularly well, uh, usually it's myself who does the driving and my wife is the navigator. If I had to do the driving and the navigating, it makes it a lot harder, although we have um, GPS in the car now, which makes it a little bit easier. But uh, it's, it's a case like that. The disciples didn't want to forsake the teaching of the Word of God. If they had to be sorting out bread and potatoes or whatever, the Word of God would be neglected. So they had some other people to take over those duties. Each person really has a vital part to play, don't they? Yes, yes. And so, who was actually chosen? Harvey, do you have an answer for that? Yes, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. What's a proselyte? A convert, basically. Right. He was uh, probably a, had been a heathen before or a pagan and he became a Jew and then he actually moved on from that. He became a Christian. So after these men were chosen, what development happened? Helen? Okay, Acts 6 and 7. I think this is, this is uh, Acts chapter 6 verse 7 is great. I really think this is great. This is an encouragement. They chose these seven, and then it says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. I I just find that so encouraging. You know, when they were all working together, there were the the apostles that were praying, and and, um, they were out there witnessing and doing what God wanted in their manner. And then you had these seven that were chosen who were also men of faith. So they would have been praying and they were witnessing in their manner and they were united in what they were doing. And be- and through that, with the Holy Spirit, the word of God increased. 
Yes. And the number was um, the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. But I thought it was interesting when it also said, and a great number of the priests. Yes. The obedient to the faith. That's an interesting little part there. Stephen, did you want to add on that? Yeah, I was just going to say something. I was just thinking about the seven deacons, as we often call them. And we're inclined to think, oh, they just deked. You know, they, went, <laughs> they did food and tables and chairs and all that kind of stuff. But they didn't. They also were very involved in witnessing. And as you yes. as you look later in the book of Acts, you see that um, Philip and Stephen and, and others were all busy sharing their faith as well. So it wasn't like the apostles hoarded the faith-sharing responsibility to themselves. That was still released to everybody, but yes. they also had some additional responsibilities. I think that's really important to remember because sometimes... In churches, we're inclined to, oh, well, that's my job. I, that's what I do. I, I'm, a, I'm a whatever I am, and that's my role, and that's what I do for my job to help with, with the sharing of the gospel. But we are all still called to share the news of Jesus with others. Absolutely. Absolutely. Two of these um, <coughs> deacons who were chosen get special mentions. Of course, Stephen, particularly in this one, and later on, Philip, and... Um, Stephen, as you were saying, he witnesses as they witnessed, as probably they all did. But um, what what things, it says in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, that some of these things were? Well, verse 8 says, Now Stephen, I have a particular affinity for this guy, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So he wasn't just doing tables. He was doing lots of things. He was doing wonders and signs. And he was full of grace and power. So what would you think these wonders and signs might be? Well, there's not a lot of detail given on them, except when we come to his big speech that he makes before he is, um, becomes the first martyr. And I think in, the first, in that speech we see some amazing wonders and some amazing signs because it actually says how he says he sees Jesus in the throne room of heaven and that to me is quite a, quite a wonder and quite a sign yeah he probably did things like healings too well he may well have done alright well if you go on and read a little further from Acts chapter 6 verse 9 and 10 it answers the question what happened here there was something interesting that bobbed up as a result of Stephen's activity uh, serving the church, but also with other people. Yeah, well, he was performing wonders and signs among the people. Uh, we know that he was a talker. And it says in verse 9, Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. And this is the really cool verse, verse 10. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And I really like that. That I means that he was a, he was, well, he was a debater of excellence. My, my dad once said to me that when you're having a disagreement with someone, a person convinced against their will remains of the same opinion still. So somehow in the way that he debated, he was able to, or the Spirit used him to not just defeat their arguments, but to change the will of the person who was listening. And for me, that's quite a miracle. Yes. Now, there's something very particular in here, and however you might pick this up, I don't know. It says he was filled with wisdom, and it was from the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave him the wisdom to be able to do what he, um, or say what he was saying, and to be able to debate and argue and everything. And they really couldn't gainsay it mm. no. because it was so spirit-filled. Yes. And there was something that really got up their noses and uh, that that uh, caused a lot of the opposition. What was that, Harvey? Well, I suppose it, to some extent it was because he was accusing them of what they had done to Jesus to some extent. And... It, wasn't only that, but it was that was an important issue of it. Yes, it seems that in every case, through the book of Acts, starting with Peter and John at the first trial, and then the disciples at the second trial, and here with Stephen, soon as the word Jesus was mentioned, opposition began. 
because, as you know, the Jews were responsible for Jesus being crucified by the Romans, and this was their hate. And then Stephen was talking about Jesus as God, and so that's what made them really cranky. Mm. So what did they accuse Stephen of in talking about Jesus? Harvey? It was blasphemy. So what's blasphemy? That's putting something in the place of God, really. That's right, or, or claiming someone to be God, who they don't, who you don't think is God, I suppose, is the best way. So if I said, Len, you're God, that would be kind of blasphemous, wouldn't it? Oh, certainly it'd be blasphemous if I said I was that. Yeah. I don't think I'd be so stupid as to say that. It's trying to take the place of God, isn't it? It is. And isn't that the very thing that Satan wanted in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. There is a title given to a certain gentleman who's called the Vicar of Christ or the Vicar of God, which simply means taking the place of God. And um, the Jews didn't like it that Jesus had announced that he and his father were one and that he was with the Father before he came to the earth. All right. But doesn't blasphemy also entail um, denying or cursing God? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So with all this going on, what did the Jews do, Helen? Okay, well, I'd like to read it, if I may, from the Bible. Acts six eleven to 14 covers it very well. It says, Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against his holy place and the law for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us interesting that here is something which unfortunately quite often we do we see something or we think we see something and it may not be right and instead of going to the person <coughs> to clarify it we tend to go to other people Mm. And if if um, we we then say something against them, that can then stir up um, anger in someone else as well. And so you can see this whole scene coming about. And gradually, of course, they started accusing him of things that were not true. There were false witnesses got on the bandwagon, so to speak. And um, yeah, and and they were just saying all the time that he said this against that against, and they weren't really listening completely to what Stephen said. They were uh, angry. What version of the Bible are you reading, Helen? I'm reading. That's a very good question. I'm reading from the King James Version. Okay, it says there, I thought you said, so they suborned men. What's that mean? I don't know. I would have just thought that they got they went and got other men. Well, in my Bible it says, what did yours say? then they secretly persuaded some men to say. Yes. So, um, but although suborn seems to be a bit stronger, it seems to suggest that they kind of pressured and they coerced, coerced them. them to do um, to say these say things that weren't exactly accurate. Mm. So, in other words, they cooked the books. Well, not that there were too many books involved, but they they set it up so that um, there would be these false accusations against Stephen. You know, this is an old tactic. They couldn't win the argument. Because Stephen was filled with the Spirit, he, they just couldn't counter his argument. So one of the old tactics is, if you can't win the argument, attack the person. Mm. This happens in Parliament all the time. There are laws against it, you can't use nasty names. I did hear of one politician who called the opponent that he was speaking against a gastropod. <laughs> which is basically a, a snail or a slug. Um, but they ha we have the laws to protect people's dignity, if you like. And so they attacked the person. And if you think about the Protestant Reformation, and I've read fairly extensively about this, and I'm sure some of you have, that 
although the arguments put up by the Protestants were infallible because they were arguments based on the Word of God, the Bible, that um, the person got attacked. And so how did the uh, established church of the day try to win the argument? By killing the opposition. Well, it's, it, we always do this, don't we, in the end? Um, when we're having an argument, if we get really frustrated, we tend to turn to personal attack. You know, that, would they, I, that would remind you of Daniel, doesn't it? When, yes. when he was the Prime yes. Minister and how the other Prime Ministers or Ministers of the Cabinet um, got jealous and they tried to attack him in all sorts of ways and finally they attacked him as a person, they, you know, a person with faith who prayed to a God, well, his God. Yes, it specifically yeah. says in the story that they looked for fault in his work and could find none. Yes, yeah. Uh, that he did his work efficiently and effectively and um, with integrity. And so then they thought, yeah. well, what can we get him on? And as you say, Helen, they, they decided they would attack his practice and his person. It was interesting. Many years ago when I was in a teaching game, um, and I was so in love with the Lord, I felt I was working for him, and I still do, and not the establishment. And I had a, a colleague got very jealous, um, and, um, and I praised God. I got on well with students and what have you. And she attacked me one day and I finally said to her I said what is your problem and she said will you stop trying to be good and I said I'm, I'm not trying to be good what you see is what you get that's who I am you know there's no goodness in me except the Lord and it was really interesting that she she actually couldn't find fault with my work so she st started to attack me personally and by the way we became good friends in the end well is there anything uh, that we can apply to ourselves in this day and age that this tactic that they used, how does it relate to us as Christians? Well, I guess the rule of life is that um, you address the issue, not the person. Yes. And and that's not always easy to do. It's easy to say that in the, you know, in the, in the quietness of a room where we address the person, I mean the principle, not the person. But so often when we get frustrated in, in, the, in the discussion, we end up addressing the person, but that's not the way to go. That, no. often, that often happens between husband and wife, doesn't it? Oh, does it? <laughs> <laughs> we can use a football analogy here. We say, play the ball, not the man. That's yeah. right. No, that's, that's very good, good Harvey. Like yeah. that. Okay, going on. So Stephen was arrested and he was taken before the Sanhedrin. Now, there had been two other situations where uh, Peter and John and the disciples had been uh, fronted up or had to go before the Sanhedrin. How did it go? From the Sanhedrin's point of view, not real well, because on one occasion at least the angel actually opened the prison and let them out. <laughs> but the things that they said for them not to do, they immediately went back and did openly again. And so from, as I said, the Sanhedrin's point of view, they didn't actually achieve too much. In fact, it probably was worse. It was almost like they were defying authority. Oh, absolutely were. But of course, they wouldn't accept the authority of the Sanhedrin. They accepted the authority of Jesus. And We'd rather obey God than men. Absolutely. And that was said by Peter, wasn't it? Well, now, Stephen was uh, arraigned before the um, Sanhedrin. What's your opinion? Do you think Stephen was likely to get a fair trial? I think very unlikely to get a fair trial because they had prejudged him. They had um, a mindset which was totally against what Stephen stood for and he was certainly not going to be given a fair trial. Mm. And Helen's already mentioned earlier on that they had suborned witnesses. So they had created false testimony. So he... He was doomed right from the start. They weren't gonna. They weren't gonna roll along with this lightly. They were gonna. They were gonna deal with it and deal with it once and for all. Yeah. Now, Helen, it says something about Stephen's face. Would you like to tell us about that? I love this text. I just love it because they saw that he he'd been with Jesus. It says here in Acts six fifteen. It says, and all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And when I read this, I'm instantly reminded of Moses. Moses, if we look back on in Moses in Exodus, 
we're told in Exodus 34, I think it is, 34.29, it says, And it came to pass when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses was not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. And verse 35 says, And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. How amazing is that? Wouldn't that be something for us to have people not see us, but see the glory of God shining through us in our faces? Well, there's, there's a couple that beautiful? Of, yeah, it is, Helen. There's a couple of interesting things there, of course, because they're busy saying that he's impugning the law of Moses, right? He's busy undermining the law of Moses, and yet here he is having the same kind experience. of experience as mm. Moses, and they don't even see it. Mm. But there's no, there's no comment in the story about them responding to how his face looked. It just moves straight on to, are these charges true? Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. The other thing that I think is important is the fact that this reflects the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was up yes. with, um, who are those two blokes now? Um, Moses and Moses Elijah. and Elijah, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, when he came, when he was up there, his face also was shining. So Stephen's experience reflects not only on Moses, but even more importantly, on the experience of Jesus. Yeah. I wonder how we relate. Can people tell that we have been with Jesus? Are we spending enough time with him that, you know, when we go about our daily work and, uh, and that, you know, listener, that's something we need to think about. Can the world see Jesus in us? I have a bit of a theory. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I think you can see on a person's face a certain softness, a certain uh, acceptable acceptance um, I think Christians have a little bit different faces than the general population. But in this case, Stephen's face shone as Moses' face shone. There's something very significant why their faces shone. It was because, well, you've said it in little different words. You said it's because they had been with Jesus. Moses, of course, had been up on Mount Sinai, came down with the... uh, the Ten Commandments, his face shone. He had been with the Lord. So... Actually, Elaine, can I just add to something you said before, that you believe that you can see it in people's faces. I have seen people before they have given their heart to the Lord and there's a hardness in some of their faces. And I have watched, and it's such a delight to see somebody when their hearts are touched and you see that softness coming in. Yes. And it is visible. It is visible. It's, it's a beauty. Yes. Well, Acts chapter 7 is about Stephen's trial before the Sanhedrin. It's very interesting that the trial began with the leading question. Acts chapter 7 verse 1. The high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges, that's charges of blasphemy, true? It's interesting to notice his answer. He didn't say guilty or not guilty, he recounted the Lord's dealings with Israel from Abraham's time. He mentioned Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon. All these personalities were highly respected by the Jews. And he also mentioned Israel's response to the Lord's leading. And then particularly in verse 7, he talked about the Messiah to come. He mentioned uh, how that the Jews, because of their stubbornness, their idolatry, their traditions, that that they were condemned. God condemned them. He also invited them. No, our time is not up. He also invited them to come back to him. So Israel didn't have a very good record as it um, referred to their being faithful to God who loved them and cared for them. Stephen also mentioned the fact that the Jewish nation had every advantage. They had the presence of God, they had the history with God, but so often they turned and rejected him. And then we get to Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. Would you mind reading that, Stephen, and perhaps commenting on it? 
we go. It's pretty pretty harsh words. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. So if you were sitting in that uh, group of Sanhedrin, how would you receive that particular message? Well, I'd be ropeable. Um, <coughs> you know, I'd be going, I am a son of Abraham. You know, I am born into the line. I am a child of the covenant. I am all these things, and how dare you say those things to me? How dare you accuse me of disobeying? How dare you accuse me of, of not listening and not hearing? Even though all through his talk, as you mentioned before, Len, he had been outlining how God had done something and how they had responded negatively. And God did something, and they responded negatively. And now he's lying up with Jesus. He says, God has spoken to us most, as Paul says, most clearly through his son, and you rejected him as well. Mm. I'd be, and if, if I wasn't on board with his argument, I'd be really annoyed. That's a normal reaction, isn't it? It is, Helen. Yeah. It is, yeah. If you don't agree with someone and they... and and. Well, he's got personal now, mind you. He said he hasn't saying and the stuff in the past. He says you, and he's. Yeah. I can just imagine him. It's like he's pointing his finger at them and saying, "You guys, you are the ones." Uh, it's interesting to notice at the beginning of Stephen's speech, he spoke about our fathers. In other words, the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on. But towards the end of the speech, he never said our fathers. He said, your fathers. What's the difference? He was bringing it right back to where the problem was in the first place, wasn't he? Yes. He was saying, your fathers. But they they believed in the, that their father was Abraham all the way through. But they had, they had the wrong concept, didn't they? Really? Yes. It was yeah. through... through um, um, he was he was putting himself with them to start with, yes. our father, and then when he got to the end, he was coming back and saying, you know, your ancestors, if that's you like. Beca that's because he's bringing the, the point home. Yes. He's driving the point home. Thank and you, so, Stephen. So that's why he goes to you. Yes. So I suppose he was trying to say to them, you are who you are and what you think you are by genetics, but this has really got nothing to do with genetics. Yeah. That was the word I was searching for before. So what was the reaction then? Well, verse 54 says it very clearly. When the members of the Sanhedrin, or the council, depending on which Bible you're using, heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I said, I'm just visualizing someone gnashing their teeth at me. And um, it's kind of an amusing image. But they were, they were ropeable. They were really, they were very they cross. Were angry. Yeah, they were <laughs> they were ready to explode, I suppose. Now, what really annoyed them? What really annoyed them? Well, it's almost like Stephen doesn't even notice. Like they're 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 sitting there fuming in their chairs or on their cushions or couches or whatever it was that they were sitting on. And verse fifty five says, "But Stephen, you know, whenever 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 it says but in a story, you got a contrast, right? Yes. So yeah. they're there getting cross and, and annoyed and angry. But Stephen." full of the Holy Spirit, and that's a very key describer, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Yes. That, and, <laughs> <laughs> this just makes them angrier. He actually looked above them, didn't he? He looked... It's like us with our circumstances. We can focus on the circumstances or we can look above at God. Yeah, well, I, and let him deal with. I it. don't know. I, I think artists have drawn this picture of the of Stephen before the Sanhedrin or before the council, and they've got all these guys looking fairly annoyed, to put it mildly, and they've got this guy in the middle, and there's kind of usually a beam of light mm. or something, and he's looking up. Um, that's how they picture this. So there are really two issues here. First of all, Stephen looking up and then announcing that he has had a vision from God. First thing, in other words, they thought they were the representatives of God on earth, and here's Stephen saying, 
look, I've got direct access to God. He has shown me this. He's given me a picture in heaven. There's number one. Number can two. Just, can I just ask, did Stephen actually say that? Yeah, verse 56 says, look, he said, I see heaven open oh, and yes, the Son of Man Sorry, standing at the right hand of God. So, yeah, mm-hmm. he does say that he's seeing it. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. The second issue is, of course, that he sees Jesus, whom they condemned and crucified and didn't want to accept, sitting at the right hand of God. In other words, in a privileged position. So they had two reasons to get angry. Helen, you've got something you would like to um, Mm, say here. Yeah, yeah. I'd just like to share something that, that I was reading. And I thought it brought it out well. It says, when Stephen reached this point, there was a tumult among the people. When he connected Christ with the prophecies and spoke as he did of the temple, the priest, pretending to be horror-stricken, rent his robe. To Stephen, this act was a signal that his voice would soon be silenced forever. He saw the resistance that met his words and knew that he was giving his last testimony, although in the midst of his sermon, he abruptly concluded it. Mm. I wrote this and I think, yeah, that's a really good one, but I think it's, they weren't just pretending to be... They weren't just pretending to be angry. They were, they were angry. Yes. It yes. wasn't some, some contrived thing. It was full-on annoyance. I like well, they were so horror-stricken that the priest actually went his robe. And, and yes. He wasn't supposed to do no, that. No, he wasn't. It was a sound of mourning, but um, that but was a no-no. You don't rent that robe. <laughs> no. No, that's exactly right. That's how angry they got. So Stephen connected Christ to the Old Testament prophecies. Was he right? Yes, Absolutely. Do you know Christ how, is in, in all of the prophecies. Do you know how many prophetic statements there are in the Old Testament about Christ? There's actually quite a number. I just can't think of what it is. I think it would run into hundreds. Okay, pick a number. You want us to guess? Oh, yes, you can guess. Well, don't let us guess, Len. You've got the answer. Tell us the answer, please. <laughs> well, I actually have a Bible called the um, Disciples Bible. And um, it actually gives a list. And I uh, shared this with a gentleman once about the number of prophecies, and I count, tried to count them up. There's about 350. Oh, my. So did the Jews know about these prophecies? Absolutely. Well, Stephen accepted them. Why didn't they? I believe that they got stuck in tradition. Yeah. Really. Um, they kind of they focused on on Moses, but they focused on the prophecies that were coming through. But they didn't link it to Jesus. They didn't want to accept that Jesus was the fulfilment of the prophecies, especially in the light that they crucified him. I mean, that looked pretty bad, didn't it? <clears throat> but sometimes we tend to dwell on tradition, take tradition rather than God's word. I remember reading a little story years ago about this man and woman were married and young wife put a roast in the oven and she topped and tailed it and popped it into the oven and he said to her why did you do that she said my mother always did it so he went to the mother and he said when you do a roast do you top and tail it and she said yes he said why do you do that she said my mother always did it well grandma was still alive so he went to grandma and he said grandma when you do a roast do you top and tail it and grandma said yes and he said why do you do that she said because it wouldn't fit in my oven yeah. Now that's <laughs> tradition, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's for them later on down the track. <clears throat> it meant nothing. The mm. tradition was no longer, but they were sticking to tradition. And I see that these people were doing the same. They were hanging on to their traditions mm. and not even prepared to open their minds to what Stephen was saying. Yeah, I think I think it's like there are plenty of texts in the Old Testament that that can support the point of view that the Jewish leaders took. But there are other texts that don't, and it's like you get tunnel vision on on a certain part of it, mm. and there and and that lines up with what your great hope and expectation was. And in those cases, their great hope and expectation was an independent um, land of their own at that time. And of course, that didn't happen. Mm. And so, because that wasn't what the outcome was, then he didn't fulfil the prescribed expected behaviours, and so therefore he was not going to be the, the Messiah in their mind. Interestingly, the Israelites were God's favoured nation Mm. in the Old Testament specifically. And they sort of, instead of using that 
um, favoured status to actually spread the love of God around, they sort of kept inward. It, they looked inward rather than outward. Mm. Did exactly what was really not required of them. And But they sort of got to the stage where we have to be right because we're God's favoured people. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Harvey, would you like to read Acts chapter 7, verses 57 to 60 to go on with the narrative? What happened? They were all angry and huffy and, well, more than huffy, they were really crazy angry. What happened then? Yes, in verses 57 to 60, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And in, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Yep, so they went and stoned him. Was that stoning legal? Well, I think for the charges that he was um, accused of, they could have said, well, that was what was required. But as for being legal at that point in time, I hardly think so. Mm. It was murder. It was. It wasn't legal, really, because the Romans were the overrulers, and it was really on their authority. But anyhow, there's quite a bit of debate about this. Stephen... This was the turning point in the history of the Christian church. In what ways? Well, I guess the key thing there is, well, there's a few key things, actually. Um, one of the key things is who was there approving of their death. I, I guess we'll get to that in a little while, but that's quite significant. Um, but the reality was that it's around about this time that um, the persecution started to build up in Jerusalem, and that pushed the believers out and as they went out the gospel got spread and it got spread not just to people who were of the Jewish nation mm. but also people who were beyond its boundaries and so the stoning of Stephen becomes a signal for the fact that the gospel goes to the Gentiles as well and that salvation is based not on what your ethnicity is yep. but on who you put your faith in right. it was almost a forced expansion wasn't it I think so, I think so. and I guess it's probably I don't know whether this is right or not but we're inclined to huddle we get with people who we agree with and we think a lot, think similarly with and we all hang together and we feel comfortable in our group. But the reality is that God doesn't want us to stay in a group. He wants us to go. That's why he, mm. Jesus says, I send. And he sent out the apostles. He sent out the disciples to share their faith. And he wants to send us too for the same very reason. That's yeah. why he said go and not sit. That's he exactly didn't say what, sit. He that's said exactly go. right, Helen. He didn't he say go. sit and rest you yeah. a while. Yeah. But isn't it, sorry, Len, I was just going to say, isn't it interesting though when you look into prophecy how this was actually a fulfillment of prophecy? That's right. If you go to Daniel it? chapter 9, yeah. which is the, the most amazing messianic prophecy you ever come across which pinpoints the beginning of jesus ministry um and pinpoints his death on the cross for us in the middle of that final period of seven um at the end of the period of seven is about the time when the stoning of the apostle Ste oh, the apostle the deacon stephen occurs and then the gospel goes out to those who are beyond because if you look at all the um at the uh the requirements that were to be fulfilled in that 77 or 70 week period um they were all met in Jesus and not met in the in the people of, that Jesus was a part of, and so therefore the news of Jesus had to go beyond and about. Well, now, as Stephen was dying, he made a special prayer, beautiful prayer. Harvey, what was it all about? Well, I read it earlier, but I'll read it again because it's verse 60. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So while he was actually being stoned, at the very end, as he was about to breathe his last, he was asking for forgiveness for those who were actually stoning him. Yeah. I see a parallel here. Yes. Of Jesus when he was on the cross. What did and, he say? And if we look at Luke, um, Luke twenty three thirty four, it said, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yeah. There's a parallel, isn't there? Yeah. How could you do that? Uh, I think it would be very hard. 
But um, Stephen was able to forgive the people that um, were killing him, which is quite an amazing thing to do. You, you, you read stories about people who have been harmed by others, and they're not always quite so forgiving. There are also stories where people are. And you think to yourself, well, what makes the difference between, in this case anyway, between Stephen and, say, someone who wasn't prepared to forgive someone who's persecuting them unto death? And I think the answer is back in Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, because it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace mm. and power. And I think it's God's grace that enables us and empowers us to be able to be gracious to others, even when they don't do the right thing by us. I like it too, um, Stephen, that when you look at the word grace, it's also a name of the Holy Spirit. He is known as the Spirit of Grace. Yes. And so Stephen had the Spirit of Grace. He had the power of God. And in, in answer to what you were saying before, there are some that cannot forgive. And we cannot in our own, when we've suffered something really horrendous at someone else's hands or our children, through our own strength, we cannot forgive. It's, it's actually out of our realm to forgive. But... If we allow the Holy Spirit, mm. the Spirit of Grace, to take over our life, we can truly forgive. Yeah, there's that a wonderful person. story I read uh, many years ago called "The Hiding Place" about Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom. Yes. And um, after I'd read that story, some years later, I read an anecdote in, about her life, and she was doing a presentation. I, I don't know where it was, somewhere in Europe. And at the conclusion of her presentation, a a man came up to her and greeted her as a fellow believer in Jesus. And then he told her who he was and reached out his hand to shake her hand. And she said, I couldn't because this was a former prison guard of one of the, of the camp that I was in. That I was in of a he had consul. been partly responsible for her sister's death. Yes. Mm -hmm. And she could not greet him as a, as a brother in Jesus. And she prayed. And she says as she prayed, she felt her arm go. And she said, it wasn't me, it was God's mm, power absolutely. working in me. I think that reflects a little bit of what Stephen was going through. It was interesting, Corrie Ten Boom had said that she had just finished preaching on the love and the forgiveness yes. of Christ. <laughs> and she was put into that situation. Yeah. Um, so really, what she was preaching, although she thought she believed it, her life hadn't shown it to that point well, I think until the Holy Spirit took over. I think that possibly is true, although yes. I think it probably had. But you know, as we yes. as we walk on our Christian journey, God places challenges oh, before so. us, yeah. and and as they come along, um, we have to be able to cope with them, and we can mm. only cope with them through this power of Jesus. That's a beautiful and the, story, and it's yeah. a wonderful story. And she and she reaches yeah. out her hand and she says, and once she'd done it, it was okay. Yes, yeah. but the doing of it was very hard. Yes. And I think, you know, that's okay. Well, if you w watch the movie The Railway Man, a very similar situation uh, has developed where the guard had beaten up this man. And later on, when they met, after the war was over, he was able to extend grace to this man too. Mm. So uh, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, it talks about somebody who was there, not actually stoning Stephen, but he was there, who was that? It was Saul. Verse 1 says, And Saul approved of their killing him. So why is the mention of his name significant? Be because Saul is also known as Paul. Saul was probably his his Hebrew name. Paul was probably his Greek name. And he was the one who then takes the news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And that's why, as I mentioned before, when we are talking about you asked the question, um, uh, what happened as a result of Stephen's death I uh, said well you know you've got this guy who's approving of his death I think it says in another in another version as well um, that's him Saul who became known more often as Paul who was in the one who was known as the apostle to the Gentiles yeah he jumped ship didn't he he did jump ship it took <laughs> a little while for it to happen but if you read through from Acts chapter 8 you'll find the story of him of him of him jumping ship all right well we're going to go down to um, this next thing the the Christians were persecuted there was this terrible persecution that began at that time and we read about that in Acts chapter 8 the first few verses and what did the Christians do well to escape the persecution they they went away they looked for other places to live where there'd be no persecution my question is was this a good or a bad thing, that the the Jews persecuted the Christians, Saul was 
part of this. So the Christians spread out. Was that good or bad? I think it was a case of that it was good in one respect because when Jesus gave the commission, go ye into all the world, they had to get out and go. And this was actually forcing it upon them because they couldn't stick around if they otherwise they'd be persecuted. So they spread out all over the Roman Empire mm. and that meant that the gospel went out very rapidly. The gospel went with them, eh? Yes. Yeah. Well, here's a here's a hard question to ask. No, it's easy to ask, harder to answer. Stephen, do you think God was behind the killing of Stephen? <laughs> it's a funny question to ask for me with the same name, but um, I think the answer is that God uses everything um, for His plans and His purposes. It's you know it's it's hard for us to say that God is behind the death of somebody or behind persecution because God is good and great and the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Heavenly Lights who does not change like shifting shadows in the book of James. So I can't really comfortably say that God directed that Stephen be killed. But in the light of that happening, God used it for his purposes. Mm. And as Harvey mentioned before, the the, um, the believers spread out through Judea and I guess on towards Samaria and beyond, and beyond and with them went the news of who Jesus was and who Jesus is and that's a really good thing Okay, there were steps given Jesus gave the steps in Jerusalem all Judea, Samaria the uttermost part of the earth well now we're reaching the Samaritans in other words Samaria how did the Jews, the normal Jews, not the Christian Jews, how did they regard the Samaritans, Harvey? They were lower than the lowest as far as the Jews were concerned. They wouldn't even walk through the territory of the Samaritans. They'd go around even if it meant a, a much longer walk. Um, Which it did. And they felt unclean even if a shadow of a Samaritan fell on them. They would feel totally unclean. So, it was about as um, racially biased as you can get. So this would be a good place for these Christian refugees to go because the Jews didn't want to go there. And uh, so Philip was uh, in Samaria and he preached and performed miraculous signs in Samaria. What reaction was there from the Samaritans, Harvey? In Acts 8 verse 8, simple, small text, but it says... And there was great joy in that city. They loved it. You know, they had suddenly felt that they had some recognition that they had not had before. Mm. Yes. Well, the Samaritans were shut out from, if you like, the message of salvation. And now they had it. Can I just interrupt a bit? Um, it's interesting to me that, that, that the Samaritans responded so well because when you read back in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 4, in the story of the woman at the well, yeah. that's where Jesus makes his first um, disclosure of who he is. Yeah. And he makes it to a Samaritan. Yeah. And I often wonder if there's any tie-up between the, the, um, uh, the disclosure that Jesus made to that woman and then to the people in the village nearby, if that help with the connection when Philip went up to Samaria later on to do his presentations whether there were people who had heard about this and then they were ready to respond I don't know, this is yeah. a bit hypothetical but I often wonder if there are those kind of connections So there was great joy in Samaria um, How would you relate this to um, our present times? Well, I think when God comes into your life, when you meet Jesus, there is joy. You know, you, you go along to a baptism and you watch someone who's publicly declaring their faith in Jesus. Yes. They don't usually come out of the water without a smile on their face and you can see joy. Yeah. And joy is really good. I think when Jesus is in, is in your life, there is joy. There has to be joy. If there's no joy, then there needs to be a reassessment of, of the walk that you are having, yeah. of the life that you're having with God. Yeah. Helen, what did you want to say? I was just uh, going to say something very, very similar. I've seen it myself, you know, when you study with someone and then they go into the water of baptism and there is a joy. There is a joy as they come out. I remember when my mother was rebaptized, she gave her heart fully to God. And I can distinctly remember as she came up the steps, her face and, and the church 
spoke actually said the same. Her face shone. Mm. You know, she had that joy. Joy is different to happiness. Happiness is transient. Joy is, is what the Lord gives you deep in your heart. And it shows through. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, going on with the story. An incident occurred with somebody called Simon the Sorcerer. <clears throat> what did he want? And why did he want it? Well, Simon's story is, is rather intriguing when you think about it because he follows a time where he listens to um, Philip and the apostles. He is stirred. But Simon was a sorcerer. And he actually bewitched the people of Samaria and he gave himself the appearance that he was a great person, a great one. And then along came the disciples, and Philip particularly, he was preaching, and Simon himself believed, and he was actually baptized, and, you know, and the apostles went on their way. But a little bit later, we, t we hear the story in Scripture in the Bible where Simon um, was witnessing the power of the Holy Spirit, and and he saw what was happening, and so he immediately went to the the um, disciples and he said, um, "I I I want this power. I want this power. Give it to me." And he was even prepared to buy it. He said, "You know, my money. I want to buy this. Can we buy the Holy Spirit?" No, of course you can't. Absolutely not. <laughs> what I find really, really great is that Peter actually said that to him, your money will perish with you. But he actually called to him to repent. And praise the Lord, Simon did. Mm. Interesting story. All right. Well, it's good to pray for a gift. Um, but why do we pray for it? Do we pray for it to, be, uh, to show that we're blessed by God, some gift of the Holy Spirit? No. No? No. Why, we why not? No, that's, that's manipulating. We're trying to manipulate God. I think years ago when I'd get up in the morning and I'd have my devotions and I'd lay down my plans for the day and I'd say, well, Lord, this is what I have worked out. This is my day. I don't do that anymore. I take, uh, take in the morning to the Lord and I just say, whatever your plans are, then use me. And so he then um, gives me... Um, well, I'd like to use the word inspiration, but he, he teaches me what he wants for the day. And, and as such, any interruptions are his interruptions, how he has brought it about in my life. We're, we're not to try and just use... God isn't a supermarket manager. No. He, he doesn't just doll out, you know, stuff left, right and centre. No. We have a personal God who loves us so much and he is supreme and he knows what's best for us. We no. don't. He wants us to be committed first. Mm. I think, Stephen, you were about to say something. We've got to, oh, we've got to wind this up very okay. soon. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Harvey, it was a, quite an unexpected thing that so many Samaritans were uh, became Christians. Should we be surprised today if some ethnic group suddenly becomes Christians? Not at all because it's not us that does it, it's the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit moves in the lives of anybody, whatever ethnicity, we should never be surprised. If we're surprised, we probably aren't doing what we should be doing. All right. Well, <laughs> we've, got to, we've got to finish now. Time is against us. Uh, panel, would you like to give a take-home message for our listeners from this particular study we've been doing? Well, I, I guess for me the big take-home message is that Jesus is for everybody. He's yes. not for a select group. He's not for um, a racial grouping or an ethnic grouping or a cultural grouping or a subcultural grouping. He's for everybody. Yeah. And for me that's the good news. It really is. It's good news that he's for everybody because what Jesus has done is for everybody. Yeah. Anybody else? I think Gamaliel had it. Correct, and Gamaliel was a teacher, a Pharisee, and in verse 38 and 39 of Acts chapter 5, it says what Gamaliel said, and he says, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Yeah, yeah. Do you have one, Helen? I believe that to be right uh -huh. is not always popular, but 
have God in your life and God is still in control. He's in control and he wants to use each one of us. He wants to have us dwell with him and he is coming very soon. And in being in control, this world is not going to last forever. My friend, this world is going to vanish and God's kingdom is going to be set up. And what a day that's going to be. Yes. Well, since you've all shared one, I'm going to share one very quickly. In Christ, there is victory. So thank you very much for listening today. And we've enjoyed presenting this to you. And uh, tune in next week when we will present the fifth Bible study in the book of Acts.